This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. and lose control over food? Are you tired of obsessing over every bite? You're not weak or a failure. You're just stuck. And it has nothing to do with willpower or being addicted to food. Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin, the author of The Binge Cure, will teach you exactly how to create permanent, sustainable weight loss, no dieting necessary. In this episode, Dr. Nina shares some of the successful tools she has used in her online program to help thousands of people heal their relationship with food. Dr. Nina talks about how to crack the code of emotional eating, identify your binge triggers, express your feelings, and make lasting changes with powerful strategies that will help you stop binging, lose weight, and gain health. Her program also helps you discover which emotions you're feeling based on the types of foods you're binging with the food mood formula. If you mindlessly overeat to manage deeper, intolerable feelings, then you need to investigate what's leading you toward food rather than fixating on what you're eating. There's only one way to get rid of the uncomfortable feelings you're trying to avoid, to feel them. It's time to ditch your inner critic lose the fat talk, and be a real friend to yourself. Instead of focusing on what you weigh, focus on what's weighing on you. If something is bothering you, you can't starve it away or stuff it down. And you cannot measure your true value on a bathroom scale. When you feel, you will heal. Get ready to break the diet habit and make peace with food and yourself. Valeria Tellis interviews Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin. Nina Savelle Rocklin, PSYD, is a psychoanalyst, author, and radio host specializing in food, weight, and body image issues. Internationally recognized for her unique perspective, she is the author of The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating and Food for Thought, Perspectives on Eating Disorders. She is co-editor of Beyond the Primal Addiction and hosts a radio program on LA Talk Radio. Here is the interview with Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin. In your own words, who is Dr. Nina Savelle Rocklin? Oh, you're starting with a big question. (laughs) I would describe myself as someone who is passionate about helping other people help themselves 
free themselves from the toxic relationship they have with themselves, which leads to troubles with food, as I am a psychoanalyst who specializes in food, weight, and body image issues and eating disorders. But really what I do is I help people transform the way that they relate to themselves and that transforms everything else. And I would say I'm also a great Dane lover and a mom (laughs) and a wife, not necessarily in that order. (laughs) That is so cute. Thank you. I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, The Binge Cure, and also what to do about binge eating disorder and emotional eating. So my official first warm-up question is, what is life to you? When I was about 10 years old, I saw this quote, and it was, live, do not merely exist. And that struck me even as a young child, but I was sort of old, old for my age. I just remember thinking about that, like, wow, live, do not merely exist. And what does that mean for me? And it means the same thing, which is that life means to fully live, to embrace your humanity, to be uh, loving, to be loved, to do everything that you can for me to do everything that I can to help other people, to have experiences, to experience joy in the moment and interesting people and and places. It really means to live life to the fullest. Yeah, I love that. What would you say is the opposite of that, the opposite of life? One of the things that I talk about a lot is that there are two kinds of people in the world reflective people who think about the way that they think and think about why they feel a certain way or why they respond a certain way and can think about uh, what other people might think or feel. And to me, they are living. And the opposite of living is, so there are reflective people and there are reactive people. And to me, the opposite of truly living is to be reactive and close-minded and shut down to new ideas and new people and new situations and new ways of thinking, to be kind of dead inside. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That is so true. What is the meaning of freedom to you? Freedom to think as you think feel as you feel without worrying about what other people are going to think about you. I spent so many of my younger years being so petrified of you know, what people were going to think of me and how they might judge me. And I had to be perfect. And, and it's so liberating and, and such a sense of freedom to just say, you know what, this mm-hmm. is how I think, this is what I feel, this is what I believe. I'm open to other ways of thinking, but this is me and that's okay. And if you don't like it, oh, well, that's, (laughs) to me, that's freedom. Yeah. It's very empowering, isn't it? Yes. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? Oh, well, this is a time as we're speaking today, we are dealing in the time of coronavirus. It's particularly dear to my heart because I have actually lost someone very close to me. And it's become clear to me that during this time and what I hope the lesson of this time will be, the world's greatest need is to come together, uh, to be here for each other, to support each other, to 
not just be on that hamster wheel of success and what are you going to do and how much money are you going to make and what are you going to buy and how much stuff are you going to have, but how can you truly live your best life? How can you be of service to others? We need to have sort of more of a collective sense of we are in this together and we have to, we have to live not just for our own selves, but for the greater good of the community. We are in this together. What a beautiful message. Um, it very much resonates yeah, with my heart. It's so true. What is love to you? How would you define love? Uh, several things are going through my mind as you ask this question, these questions. Um, so I, you know, I thought of first of, you know, my, my, my husband's kiss and to, you know, his smile and of the, of the, my daughters as, as babies, one of them's a preteen now, so I don't get to see that smiling face very (laughs) But to me, love is, and the aforementioned Great Dane, who's just the the 165 pounds of love, right? (laughs) Right. To me, it's, it's just, it's unconditional acceptance and unconditionally being there for someone and helping them through difficult times or helping them learn to to be in the case of children to be the best people they can be and love is about about trust and about safety and speaking of love a lot of people connect love to the idea of god so i i will ask you this question where who and what is god well i was raised by atheist Jews. So, <laughs> um, how do you, how do you do that? Right. How, they definitely, well, and yet very, uh, very much culturally Jewish. And I would say that I could never say, well, there is no God with absolute certainty because I don't know. And certain things have happened to me that have, I, that are not explainable, but maybe they're explainable, not within God. But I will say that when I was a kid, I saw Star Wars. And when I saw Star Wars, it just blew my mind. I, oh, and the force, the force is what I think of when I think of God or religion, whatever that force is that connects us all, whether you call it God, whether you call it energy, whether you quantify it and and put it in the label of of religion or dogma or something, there's some force that connects us all. And to me that, you know, whether it's spirituality you talk about or whatever vernacular is used, the force from Star Wars, it's, that's it for me. (laughs) It's togetherness, it's unity, and it's about doing the right thing, yeah. no matter what. I love that, Dr. Nina. I'm wondering if you see a difference between spirituality and religion. Absolutely. Yes, there are a lot of people who are religious but not spiritual, and a lot of people who are spiritual but not religious. So, yes, yes. Right. So my last warm-up question, what do you think is the main purpose of your life? Oh, I know the main purpose of my life is to help other people to understand themselves in a way that helps them be happy and fulfilled in their own lives. I have, uh, the way I describe 
uh, therapy to my patients or to my coaching clients. It's the same thing. And it's this, and this is, this will sort of in a roundabout way answer your question. Um, the artist Michelangelo was once asked, Michelangelo, how do you turn these great blocks of stone into statues? And for anyone who's seen the David, as I have and stared at it for about an hour, just going, oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. So how do you turn these great blocks of stone in, into statues? And Michelangelo said in so many words that he did not turn the stone into statues. He freed the statues from the stone. And to me, that is just such a beautiful way of articulating the work that I do, whether it's in my uh, work with private patients, whether it's in my coaching programs, my books, my radio show. I help people chip away at what is keeping them stuck and unable to, to move to a different part of their life, you know, move forward, keeping them keeping them trapped. I help them chip away at that so they could be their most authentic, genuine, most beautiful selves. And I don't mean beautiful in the physical sense, but I, but that too. Uh, but that's my purpose in life. That's beautiful. Do. The work you do very much reminds me of art. I like this, uh, this association that you just made, being an artist, a healing artist. Yes, yes. So let's talk about your work. What was the inspiration, intention in the process of writing your book, The Binge Cure? Yeah, The Binge Cure, Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating was written because I had written a couple of other books that were more, I, I wrote them as academics, scholarly, but crossover books. So mm -hmm. there, I wanted ever, anyone to be able to read them, but they're still a bit academic. People would say, well, I had to have my thesaurus or my dictionary there because you use words I've never even heard of. And I think because that's what you've got to do when you're a scholarly writer. And I just thought, I really, really want to get these concepts out to people in a mainstream way. And, um, you know, people would say they listen to my radio show and they'd say, oh, I wish I could just, I, I listened to it. I wish I could just, you know, write it down or remember it or things like that. Mm -hmm. So I just thought I've got to, I've got to take what I know and distill it down into a book that is written for anybody. Taking mm -hmm. these psychoanalytic concepts that are usually, um, um, and contemporary psychoanalysis, by the way, not Freudian, but these concepts are usually just so arcane and difficult to understand and no one knows what the heck a, a psychoanalyst is talking about because they use this this language that nobody else understands and yet the concepts are so powerful and i wanted to be able to say hey here's this concept in language that you can understand and it's going to help you so much and so that's why i wrote the book yeah, and you did such a wonderful job with it. Um, what is your personal experience with binge eating disorder? Well, my personal experience with binge eating and all, indeed all eating disorders was that when I was five years old, only five, I seemingly randomly just suddenly decided that my legs were fat, which they were not. Mm -hmm. And I just had this idea that if my legs were thinner, if I was somehow skinnier, that my life would be better. Mm 
And this started me on a path to a series of eating disorders so that by the time I was a teenager, I would just go in a cycle from binge eating to bulimia to restricting. And I, I, I was completely preoccupied and, and obsessed with losing weight. So if you look at any page of any of my journals from that time, it's all numbers. It's all, this is what I ate. This is what I'm going to burn off. This is what I'm going to eat tomorrow. This is how much I'm going to weigh. I, if I went hiking with friends, I wasn't saying, oh, I'm having a good time. I'm hiking with my friends. It was like, okay, I'm hiking with my friends. I'm burning so many calories. I'm definitely going to lose a pound. by So then I finally went to therapy for anxiety in college. I, and I talked with my therapist about everything that was going on, my future guys, everything, my parents, the world, everything, except what was going on with food. I was, as I thought of myself, the, 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 the poster child for eating disorders. And yet my therapist had no idea what was going on with food, none at all. And yet by the time I left therapy, all my eating disorders were gone never to return. And people said, well, how is that possible? How do you, how do you get over every eating disorder that there is without ever talking about food? And this is how I, my experience in therapy taught me that it wasn't food, that food was not the problem. It was the solution to the problem, whatever I was doing with it. And I learned that the real problem was my relationship with myself and my high expectations and my judgmental voice and all of these things. And as I changed those in therapy, everything with food changed as well. And so I really wanted to do that for other people. And by the way, why would I suddenly at age five decide that my legs were fat? Because I was constantly being told my parents were academic you know, professors and they they were very studious and they were always writing papers or reading or something like that and I was bouncing off the walls and they would tell me hey you know calm down you're too much you're too loud you know knock it off and the message was that you're too dramatic that was a big one you're too sensitive the message was in my five-year-old mind you're too much and so a five-year-old has a very concrete way of seeing the world. So this message of you're too much became, I'm literally too much. There's too much of me. And if less of me, then I would be more acceptable. And so that really shows the power of the psychology behind uh, liberating yourself from eating problems. It has nothing to do with food as the problem. Food is the solution to the problem. That is incredible and makes sense to me. So I'm wondering if this is the case for everyone or have you found uh, different causes? I think people are all different and I see men and women of all, all ages. I see a lot of people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s who've struggled with it their whole lives. It's not that it, it's not about um, what sometimes they even think it's about. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not about vanity. It's not about any of the things that often people think it is. But one of the things that I see that is true in every single person is that they they don't know how to self-soothe. They don't know how to 
respond to their um, emotions because in part, we live in a culture that says, don't feel anything. You're, ang- you're angry, you know, take an anger management class. You're, you're sad, you're depressed, take a pill. You're anxious, hey, there's a pill for that too. So, so we live in a culture that says, hey, feelings are bad and you're weak if you have them, so don't have them. And then what do people do with what's going on inside? Because feelings are not weak, they're just reactions to situations. And so if, you, if you're filled with feelings and you don't know what to do with them, well, um, turning to food is one way to cope. Because if I may bring a psychoanalytic concept in, people say, why food? In yeah. fact, this one woman, I'll, I'll never forget it. She said to me, she said, Dr. Nina, like, why is food my thing? If, if I were addicted to meth, at least I'd be skinny. <laughs> and she was serious, which is horrifying. But what I told her and what I'm going to tell you is why food? Because as babies, our first experience of uh, relationship is being fed. We're held in a parent's arms. We feel safe and secure. We have, you know, eyes looking at us, a smile. There's like a blissful experience of connection that goes along with being fed. And so eventually we don't, we don't logically think of it this way. We don't intellectually think of it this way, but food and feeding equals relationship in our psyche. So when we talk about comfort food, for example, we're really talking about a wish to be comforted by someone else. And that is um, it's true. Why food? That's a great question. But I think there's uh, a lot of a lot of us turn to other things, worse things like um, drugs. Yeah, that's very unfortunately it happens a lot. Yeah, drug addiction. One of the other books that I co-edited with uh, Dr. Salman Akhtar is called Beyond the Primal Addiction, and it was about all the all different types of addictions. I don't particularly like the word addiction, but there it is. And But all addictions have the same source, which is it is a strategy for coping, but it's mm. essentially a frenemy. It hurts you, but it also does something for you. It's a friend in some way, even though it also, of course, is very bad for you and harmful. Yeah. What an interesting way. Yeah, you're just saying that it's a friend, but at the same time, an enemy. True. Yeah, about the time frame, you say that change is a process. So I'm wondering how long it takes for someone to shift their perspective and make those chains uh, in the sense of um, permanent chains. It, you know, it's different for everybody. It depends on how deeply ingrained this is. It depends on how they, long they've struggled or, you know, what's really going on in their individual situation. But mm-hmm. I, I will tell you that I created a 12-week program called the Inner Circle Coach, Coaching Program. And it's a hybrid of this book that we're talking about and uh, my online program and me. And in 12 weeks, uh, people in the group saw incredible, incredible shifts. So even though you can, you know, you can go to psychoanalysis for a long time, you can go to therapy for a long time. I'm not saying in 12 weeks, you'll be completely free of all of this, but you're sure going to really, you're going to understand why you're doing what you do. Because here's the thing. 
in order to in order to create change, you've got to see what you're fighting. And if a lot of what's going on is unconscious or automatic or hidden from you, people, and I'll give an example in a second, people often don't know why they're doing what they're doing. So you can't fight an invisible army. You just get beaten up. You just keep going to the fridge. Uh, But when when you make the army visible, when you make the unconscious conscious, take the take what's hidden and bring it into light, then you see what you're fighting and then you can fight. So I would say that is possible and that is what I'm seeing in my 12-week program. But of course, there are people who go f- to treatment for um, a long, long time and then might stay because... For, for other reasons, but, but it, it, it's different for, it's different for, for everybody. I, I would not say that it's going to take 12 weeks to get over this. Of course mm-hmm. not. If you struggled for decades, 12 weeks is not going to do it, but it sure can help you realize what is eating at you and why you're doing what you're doing, which is a huge part of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding at the causes, what do you call the food is the solution for the problem. So the causes for that that kind of solution, right? For, to look for that. The root. Like the perfect analogy is the weed and the root because we see a weed, we don't see the root, but we know that there's a root there because it's growing the weed. But when mm-hmm. we pluck a weed, you know, that's not getting rid of the, the root, which is like our unconscious minds. It's hidden from us. It's in the dark. You've got to get to what's hidden and, and get rid of that in order to be healed really for good. Yeah. And that's the only way we can see uh, the the choices we have, right, Dr. Nina? Exactly. By being aware of what's happening, running on the background. So true. I'm also wondering if you use the word change and transformation, um, if you connect them or you have a, a different definition for them. Yes, change is not the same as transformation. Transformation involves change, but change does not involve transformation. What I like to say to people, and often people struggle with binge eating, have struggled for a long time, years, decades sometimes. And they'll say, well, I know I've got to deal with this for the rest of my life. And I say, no, you can transform your relationship with food by transforming your relationship with yourself. Um, and that's a more powerful word than the word change because it implies going from one thing to another, you know, a, 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 a caterpillar breaks out of the cocoon. It, it doesn't, it may change into a butterfly, but really it, it's a transformation. So I think transformation is a more powerful and hopeful word. Yes. Yeah. It might relate to, uh, motivation within. Um, let's talk about diets because that's a huge, huge topic. Oh, diets do not work uh, for both uh, (laughs) physiological and psychological reasons. And in my book, I talk a lot about the studies that have been, that show that dieting actually always causes long-term weight gain, not weight loss. Um, and there are many reasons for that, but in terms of what I do and the psychology of eating, diets keep you focused on what you are eating, but not why. So diets keep you focused on food instead of what's eating at you, unless you deal with the why and unless you deal with the psychology of this, there's no end to dieting. 
You know, that's why people, I have so many people who've had gastric bypass or other bariatric surgeries who've lost 100, 200 pounds, and they initially thought, great, this is it, I'm, I'm, I'm free, and end up gaining much, of, if not all of the weight back because they realize by the time they come to see me that food was never really the problem. Diets keep you focused on food and, and not on uh, what's motivating you to turn to food. And there's a $60 billion diet industry that is very much invested in people thinking, you know, that this is the solution, just another diet. Wow. And that is very much the case. Do you know anything about intuitive eating? And do you suggest that? I do. I'm a huge fan of intuitive eating. However, in my experience, you can't become an intuitive eater until you first resolve and heal your relationship with food as it is. Like yeah. first, you've got to realize how you came to use food in a certain way, whether it's to cope, to um, distract, to numb, to punish, to, to fill a void, or there are a plethora of different ways that people use food. Until you can change that, you cannot become an intuitive eater. It's really, it's hard to know, like, what is my body feeling? Or what, you know, do I want protein when you're in this psychological battle uh, to understand food. Because if we still have issues within, then we cannot trust our intuition. Exactly. Because then people will say things like, that's true. Well, my intuition was telling me I needed to eat four pieces of pizza. Intuition. You want to be able to really heal first. And I, I use the word heal rather than change, heal. So that, so that when you have a more, uh, a healed um, relationship to yourself, then you can say, well, you know, hmm, what do I want for dinner? And listen to the body, right? In your book, you point something very interesting to me. It's about the uh, difference between overeating and binging. Yes. Overeating means you're just eating too much. You're e eating to excess. And that is something that everybody does at some times. And here in America on Thanksgiving, you know, it's everyone overeats, right? That's not everyone literally, but that's the whole thing. Like, so when you, when you overeat, you just say, oh, I just had too much of that. And oh, maybe I'll exercise more. Or I'll, I'll cut back tomorrow. It's not, you don't feel bad about yourself. Maybe you feel bad about what you, like you ate too much and you were maybe uncomfortable, but you don't feel bad about yourself. Binging means eating a large quantity of food at one time. And it's done in this, is in this compulsive way. And often people who binge don't even enjoy it. It, it becomes mm. this compulsive, horrible act that they cannot stop. And it's a way of coping. So overeating is just, yeah, too much or whatever. Um, but, but binging is a way of trying to, to, to cope, to distract, to, do, to, to change the way you, you feel. It involves incredible amount of guilt and remorse and shame. So, so where someone who's overeats, they might say, oh, you know, I overdid it. Like I said before, you know, I overdid it. I'll cut back tomorrow. Someone who is binge eating thinks, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have more control? Why don't I have more willpower? Something's wrong with me. And that's the voice of shame. And that's a big, big difference. Yeah. So in a way, is um, 
unhealthy feelings is connected to the before and after eating. It's a bad relationship with food, right? If I may give an example of what I mean by unconscious or hidden motivations, because sometimes people will tell me, as this one person did, she, she said, well, she had no emotional issues. She was fine. She had a good day at work. And then she tells me that she's a food addict and that she can prove it. And I, I do not believe in food addiction, maybe eating addiction, which is a little different. But I believe people are addicted to the actual substance. It's not just my belief. It's actually scientifically. Been. So I said, well, I'm all ears. Let's hear it. What's your proof? And she told me that, th- that the night before, after this perfectly good day, she had been just watching TV and relaxing. And all of a sudden, as she put it, Ben and Jerry's was calling her name. <laughs> She's like, calling name, I'm addicted to Chunky Monkey. So I said, well, well, what were you watching on TV right before Ben and Jerry's was calling your name? And she told me that she was watching Charmed, her favorite show. Therefore, she was happy. Therefore, nothing emotional was going on. And why couldn't I face it that she was indeed a food addict? I asked her what the episode was about. And she said, well... It's when the devil comes down and the sisters start fighting and it gets really, really bad and contentious and awful. And then she stopped and she looked at me and her eyes widened because she and I both knew at that moment that watching the show had activated her own complicated emotions about her own sister. But before she could become consciously aware that she was upset, she went right to ice cream for comfort. So the problem was not ice cream. Ice cream was the solution to the problem. The problem is two, was twofold. One was her unresolved relationship with her sister and her inability to cope with her feelings about that relationship. So when we, when we were working on those pieces and, and helping her to articulate and process her feelings and her thoughts, ice cream stopped calling her name. So sometimes we're not aware of <laughs> that's funny that the fact that we're being tri- triggered, and that's another reason I wanted to write this book is help I help people become aware of well, well, if you don't have me sitting there asking you questions, how do you figure it out? And in the book, I I give strategies for how you figure out what's bothering you and why you're turning to food. Oh yeah, I have some questions here about self-care, self-love. But before that, you mentioned earlier you don't like the word addiction. So I'm wondering, what is the replacement for that they usually use? Well, because I think it's a negative word. It's a, it has a pejorative connotation. You know, I'm an addict. <laughs> doesn't sound so good. I agree. When you say, yeah, but when you say, you know what, I am coping. I have this way of coping that doesn't serve me. And I'm working to to change you know, why I'm using that way of coping. It just has a, a softer, less harsh ring to it. And it's absolutely the truth. Yeah. I interviewed somebody on, I think it's the work of uh, Gabor Mate, And he talks about connection. That's the main problem. And the way you talk about um, binging and the food uh, disorder or eating disorder, it kind of makes me think about the um, lack of a connection with ourselves. And with others, because if you have an emptiness, if you're not connected to yourself and you're empty, or you're not connected to others and you're lonely, 
that is experienced as a void. And people sometimes can binge to fill the empty space within, to fill the void. So Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Connection to self and connection to others. Would you say starts with the self? That's the most important connection that we must make in order to transform? Yes, because it sets the tone for our relationships. When we are self-critical and judgmental and we meet someone who's critical of us and judgmental of us, it feels like they're just someone who knows us really well. But, but when we create a, a compassionate, curious, soothing, understanding stance with ourselves and we meet a, and we meet a critical person, we don't want any of that. And we're mm-hmm. only going to accept people who treat us the way we treat ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. What a wonderful uh, space to live from. <laughs> yeah, that one's a healthy one. Um, how do we know for sure when we, um, the difference between being physically hungry and emotionally hungry? Oh, that's a great question. Physically hungry is physical. So when you're physically hungry, you'll have, you'll have a physical sensation, whether it's a growling or a gurgling of your stomach, or maybe some people feel lightheaded, some people get minor headaches. Um, something physical will tell you that you need, you need to nourish your body. Okay. But uh, emotional hunger is when it's more about your thoughts and your mind than your body. So people who are emotionally hungry will think, oh, that sounds good, or oh, that looks good. Or they'll want to reward themselves, or they'll want to calm down or feel better, or that by eating whatever they're going to eat, that it's going to change the way they actually feel physically and emotionally. So whereas physical hunger is, I'm just not going to be hungry anymore. Emotional hunger is I'm going to change my my feeling. I'm going to change uh, or escape something. I'm going to something's going to be different after I eat that. Right. So there's these thought patterns yeah, happening. Do you think that emotional hunger could also lead to physical hunger? Is that possible? Emotional hunger, if it is about yearning. The sensation of yearning, which we have in our vernacular in our society, we say, oh, you're hungry for a love, you're you're, you're starving for attention. Mm -hmm. We even use those words to to describe a, a sense of yearning. And sometimes because we have such an intricate mind body connection, sometimes yearning for something for some people can be experienced as physical hunger. But that's more on the rare side. Yeah. Okay. So um, that would solve that issue of knowing. So now we know when there's physical hunger, hunger, that's pretty obvious. It's easy to tell, but emotional hunger, it's associated to a feeling. So we're trying to solve a problem that's not really a hunger uh, problem. (laughs) So let's talk about the solutions. I love the way you say that. Uh, make peace with food and yourself. So my first question is about how do we learn to understand and express our emotions in a healthy way and give voice to them the way you say it? 
First, you got to look at what your ideas are about emotions. For example, the, the, the one I see the most with women is I can't be angry. I don't want to be an angry person. And the one I see with men is I'm not sad. <laughs> sad. No, women. I'm a man. I'm a dude. I don't get sad. <laughs> right? That's true. So, so to first get, well, what are the feelings that scare you? And, uh, and, a lot of times people will filter one kind of feeling into another. Like for example, many women can't express their anger, but they'll get mad at themselves for what they eat, but they can't, they can't express anger without it turning into sadness. Mm -hmm. So, so to, to really first understand within yourself, what are the emotions that are difficult for you? What are the, what is, what are you conflicted about expressing? And then, where did that come from? Where did you get the idea that it's not okay to be angry? And to just get comfortable with the idea that all feelings are reactions to situations. They are not character flaws. Um, and then to then to kind of make a gauge because, for example, when I talk about anger, invariably, if I'm talking to a woman, she'll say, well, I don't want to get, I don't want to get mad. And I don't want to get angry and rage at someone. And my, my mother did that, or my father did that. And to, to, to make a gauge of like one to 10, a, a form of anger could be aggravation. It's not always a 10. So are you frustrated? Are you irritated? Are you resentful? Are you furious? And then, and then to realize that um, the way you express the feeling is not the same as having the feeling. So yelling and raging, for example, is not the same as being angry. Angry, uh, 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 enraged is the emotion. What you do with it is very different. So focus on, well, what is it, what is it that you don't want to feel and why? That's a great advice, though. And you also talk about the inner critic that we all have. And you talk about turning the inner critic into a friend. So that's my question. How do we become our own best friend? Uh, well, one way, well, one way is to treat yourself the way you would treat a friend. But often people are very kind to other people, but when it comes to themselves, they're very harsh. And one of the ways that people are harsh to themselves is they will talk to themselves to themselves as if they're talking to someone else. They'll talk to themselves in second person. So as an example, over the holidays, I had a patient who told me she was going to some event and she said, oh, I'm going to, I'm just going to eat whatever. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to give myself permission. I'm not going to try to diet. And she goes to the event and on her way home, this is how she talked to herself. She ate too much. She, she said, oh, I told myself, you you have no willpower. You have no control. You're never going to lose weight. No one's ever going to love you. Like when, so isn't that interesting that how, when she was going to the, the party, it was, I, I'm just going to have whatever. And on the way after she was harshly talking to herself in second person, I see this constantly. So one practical thing that people can do is is catch themselves talking to themselves in the second person mm, you and say i say uh, yeah say i instead because i i asked this person to re, to repeat what she had said 
But instead of saying, you have no willpower, you have no control, to say, I have no willpower, I have no control. And she started to say it and she said, oh, I can't say it as easily. It feels really harsh. Wow. So that is one strategy that really works. And the other is to watch the tone. Because another person came to me and said, well, I tried talking to myself and it didn't work at all. So I said, well, okay, what did you see yourself? And she said, well, I was going through a hard time and I told myself, it's okay, it's going to be fine. You're all right. And I said, well, no wonder you didn't feel better. Can you imagine saying that to a friend? It's okay, you're all right, it's going to be fine. That's true. It's not going to help. You could say the very same words with a different tone. It's okay, you're going to be okay, it's going to be better, you're fine. Right. It feels different. So the way the tone in which you speak to yourself is vital. And those two things are really uh, two great strategies to implement that you could do right away to be gentler to yourself. Because when when often people eat or binge to get away from their own mean voices. And that's why this is so important. Yeah, it sounds important to me. And you also talk about the word diet. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, we should go on the word diet. That's great. <laughs> yeah, the word diet. Uh, to eliminate certain words from your vocabulary. Because again, uh, the way you talk and think about yourself affects the way you feel, which affects what you do. So if you're disparaging yourself and you're like, oh, I'm so fat, you're going to feel terrible. And then you're going to eat because you feel terrible and you don't have a way of being nice to yourself. But if you eliminate the word fat, the, the fat from your vocabulary, if you were uh, eliminate the word, you know, can't, normal, ridiculous, should, um, mm. these are some of the words. If you eliminate some of these words from your vocabulary, you're not going to be talking to yourself in such a harsh way. And therefore you're not going to feel so bad. And therefore you're going to be less likely to binge. Do you connect self-care to self-love? And then my follow-up question is about unconditional self-love. Do you believe in that? I believe in self-acceptance because I think that it encompasses the things you love about yourself, which is important, and, and, and the things that you don't love about yourself. Self, self-acceptance is... is, is Think about the way we are with other people. We don't say, well, I, I would love my friend more if she was thinner, or I would love my friend more if she called me less. No, you love your friend and you put up with her quirks. But with ourselves, it's I have to be perfect often. Yeah. or I, There's no tolerance for just being a person. So self-acceptance to me encompasses uh, all aspects of, of uh, ourselves and, uh, and, and to say, okay, I don't have to be perfect. There are things about me that I'm working on and that's okay. Instead of, oh, I just love myself because I love all these great qualities. Yeah. No, I like that acceptance. That's such a powerful, another powerful state of mind. Yeah. For change, that's wonderful. Yeah, it really works. So going back to that question about self-care, do we start with self-care to get to self-love or is self-care a byproduct of self-love? I'd say self-care is an act of self-love. 
You've got to, you know, love yourself to take care of yourself. So, yeah, it's a loving act to to practice self-care. Yeah. We are at the end of the interview, and I love the way you say there's a difference between the food of love and the love for food. Yes. So many people think that they love food, but really they're trying to take in love in the form of food. Yeah, right. That's what you meant by this, right? Yeah. yeah. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions, Dr. Nina? I would like to say that there is always hope. There are so many people that I see and they, they come to me and they say, like, you're my last hope. I've tried everything. I've been to 20 treatment centers. I've been on a thousand diets. I've been whatever it is. Yeah. And they, they, or people feel hopeless. But I am here to say that no matter how long anyone has struggled with this, no matter whether it's been, you know, years or decades or months, there is always hope. You can change your relationship with yourself and therefore with food. And you can completely liberate yourself from this, from this awful preoccupation and obsession and compulsive um, eating. You can change. There is hope. Yeah. What a wonderful thing to hear. I, and that's, I believe that too, with anything in life, really. Yeah. So let me ask you my final questions. How do you define success? What is success to you today? I don't know. There, there would have been a time when I would have defined success in, in terms of some kind of numbers, like X many books sold or something yeah. like that. But I, I think that now I would define success as uh, circling back to the live, do not merely exist. That yeah. if I can look in the mirror and see someone who is living and not existing, who is taking chances, who is fully embracing all areas of life, who is taking risks, that's success to me. Yes, a thousand times. <laughs> what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? I'm smiling because... <laughs> <laughs> I ask these questions, right? Okay. Yo, this, these... I don't um, know. <laughs> really no one has ever asked me that. Um, gosh. I, I, I used to have a, a, a group and uh, for, for Christmas last year, they would always say to me, God, not Dr. Nina, you're so right. You're so right. And I'd say, you know what? Tell my husband, <laughs> Tell my husband. <laughs> you're so right. And, and it's really a joke. So they get, they got me a placard that said, Dr. Nina is always right. That's <laughs> funniest thing in the world. But in, in candidly, the hardest, the hardest lesson that I had, and I learned it a long time ago, is mm -hmm. that uh, you have to have the humility to not always be right, to, mm -hmm. and that I, I struggled with that. And I had to be able to really look at people's perspectives outside of my own and not fight to be right. Because for a while I was just fighting to be right, and that wasn't really good quality. So I would say that that was the hardest but most important lesson. Yeah, and I think we all can relate to it. I can relate to it, for sure. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? I would probably 
under normal circumstances, travel more, just yeah. see places. But I would go with my family and we would go around the world and we'd see as many places as we could. Other than that, no, I feel really good about where I am. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. Do you believe in life after death? Gosh, I sure, my, my, the force part of me sure would. And I will tell you that I have a friend, Ralphie Finn, who does um, past life regression therapy and she did it on me and I did not believe it going in, but uh, some of what happened, I can't explain as a psychoanalyst in any way. I sure would like to believe in life after death. That would be super cool. <laughs> what are three things about life you know for sure? Well, it ends, so make the make the most of it. Um, I recently lost someone to coronavirus, and that brought home more starkly than ever. Make the best of it. You know, again, back to live, do not merely exist. Hug. You got to hug the people that you care about and tell them you love them. And life is better with Great Danes. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's really great. Um, I have to agree with that, too, <laughs> with, uh, yeah, nature, animals, right? Mm, that's so wonderful. Thank you so much for your genuine presence. Um, fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, too. I see a lot of, I feel a lot of life in you, positive life, force. Thank you so much for that. And my last, last question, where can we find more information about you, your work, products, books, services, and future projects? You can go to my website, Dr. Nina Inc. It's D-R-N-I-N-A-I-N-C.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at Dr. Nina Inc., Facebook, everywhere. Um, but if you go and you can find my you can find my uh, radio show is turned into a podcast. It's the Dr. Nina show on L.A. Talk Radio. And you can find that on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. You can find my book on Amazon. It's the Binge Cure Seven Steps to Outsmart Emotional Eating. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Dr. Nina. And we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was a it was a pleasure. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Nina Savelle Rockland, please visit her website, drninainc.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.